Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Neurology. It's December 2023, and I'm Jonathan Blott. In this episode, I'm joined by two guests, Dr. Cecilia Ockerland and Dr. David Nelson, who are the authors of a new study on the clinical descriptors of disease trajectories in patients with traumatic brain injury in the intensive care unit. So let's begin with introductions, and uh, Cecilia, why don't you go first? Yeah, I'm Cecilia Orkerdund, an MD and PhD, and I'm a consultant in anesthesia and intensive care, working at Karolinska University Hospital in Stockholm, Sweden. And my name is uh, David Nelson. I'm a senior consultant in anesthesia and intensive care, also at the Karolinska University Hospital. Uh, I'm currently the medical head of their neurointensive care unit, and I've worked all near exclusively with neurointensive care for the last 20 years. And my research is conducted at the Karolinska Institute, which is different from the Karolinska Hospital, at the Department of Pharmacology and Physiology. Great. And your study used data from the Center TBI cohort. And this is a large European study that has collected data for many years on people with traumatic brain injury. So could you first of all explain to our listeners how you became involved in Center TBI and tell us a bit more about your research interests? My in- our research interests uh, have been sort of squarely in, in the range and field of, of traumatic brain injury. And uh, I've had a special interest in finding compound states or, or information content in, in data streams and neuromonitoring CTs. And that was part of my thesis also, which had to do with machine learning methods to find information in, in this TBI neuromonitoring content. And that's what led me to Center TBI because uh, the faculty opponent was Professor Andrew Moss, who is one of the masterminds and the PI of, of that whole study. And he courteously invited me into the uh, Center TBI community after that. And at this stage, it was at the um, planning and application stage. And uh, so I was with from then. And more specifically, uh, I was connected to a work package that was also physically at the Karolinski Institute, the International Neuroinformatics Coordinating Facility. And that's the bioinformatics platform in neuroinformatics. And there we also did the application part of, of this, this study that was conducted on, on pattern recognition in, in the um, ICO cohort and that I did together with Arierco at Cam- in Cambridge. My, my part in Sentitivai is that my start was that uh, David uh, offered me a PhD position. Just as, as David, my research interest is in TBI as well and patients in the neuro ICU. And before I studied medicine, I took a degree in engineering physics. So my interest in, is in particular to apply novel analytical methods on, on the complex data that we have in the neuro ICU. And in particular, I... I uh, my interest is in, in these novel methods and a new area that is quite exciting right now that we are exploring more is that of causal inference methods on, on uh, the data uh, from the, the ICU, which I think have a great potential to when we will investigate drivers of disease uh, in the patients. Mm. Yeah, we'll get more into the uh, nitty gritty of the methods in, in the next question. But um, so first, we know that the presentation of TBI can be very heterogeneous. I believe that this forms the rationale for your study, which was to identify clinical variables that 
might distinguish how the disease process progresses in people with TBI. So why is it important to understand the disease process in this way? And what key points do clinicians need to be aware of? So uh, this heterogeneity, uh, I don't think is, is only specific to TBI, though it's been particularly noticed in this area, but that we have noisy, heterogeneous ICU populations in general. And particularly in TBI, it was apparent in the 90s that um, there were a multitude of negative uh, uh, clinical trials, which led to uh, compiling these data sets to try to investigate why this was that all the trials were negative and, and this was the, the impact effort. And from this, uh, it was realized that, that characterizing um, and inclusion criteria basically on symptoms, the Glasgow Coma Scale, it, it left uh, uh, things to be desired because it was probably uh, many different pathologies that we were addressing with the same medication or treatments. And this was one of the reasons that um, uh, large observational data sets were started to be, be collected uh, by the Center TBI, Track TBI in, in the United States. And, and to my mind, conceptually, uh, with the randomized control child, you ask a, lar uh, a, very, a very pointed question to a large population, and inherently you, are, you, are at, uh, uh, you assume that they have the same pathophysiology in this process. And then we want to move down into personalized medicine, where you actually want to ask each patient many questions. And somewhere along the line, uh, we, there has to be similarities in how we react to in our pathophysiology to impact. And there has to be a tractable number for us to separate them to define which ones possibly need different treatments and different um, monitoring. And, and in the best of worlds, these will somehow have, uh, can be associated with mechanisms. And, and, and so it's, it's along this process that, that we will find our way from RCTs to personalized medicine going past sort of a defined number of, of um, states. And I, I like to think of them as, as uh, multifactorial states. Um, and if we can define uh, normal states and, and dangerous states and start to look at, at what transitions from, from certain states and how these can be moved, then we also reduce dimensionality to an, an attractable number of processes. And this, I think, is, is uh, one of the main impetuses for doing this kind of processing of the data as we have done here. Right. And you used a novel modeling approach in this new paper, um, which was quite complicated, but I think the methods are well explained in the paper. So could you hear briefly and as simply as possible for our listeners with a, a general audience in mind, Talk us through the steps involved and perhaps why you decided to take that approach. Yes, indeed, it's quite complex. Uh, and I will do my best trying to explain uh, the algorithm that we used. And uh, we used a clustering method based on a mixture of probabilistic graph models to group patients based on baseline and uh, longitudinal clinical variables during the first week of ICU stay. And each cluster that we we sort of created is representing a disease trajectory. So first we started by creating a model of, with two clusters only. And as a starting point, we randomly assigned hundred patients to each of these clusters. 
And in each cluster, we calculated the mean and standard deviation for continuous features and proportions for categorical variables. And then each patient in the full data set was compared to each cluster's distribution of each feature. How similar was each patient to each cluster? Then we calculated a probability of belonging to each cluster for according to the similarity. Uh, so each patient were assigned to all clusters, but with a different probability. So this is a so-called soft clustering algorithm. They weren't assigned solely to one cluster. And then once again, the parameters for each feature were updated in the clusters, weighted for the probability for each patient to belong to a cluster. And then the probabilities for each patient to belong to, to the clusters were once again updated. And this, this process was repeated up to a thousand times or until the cluster belonging probabilities didn't change between two iterations and we had reached some, some kind of stability in, in uh, the model. So this process was then repeated 10 times. So we got, uh, we'd randomly seeded patients as a start. So we got slightly different models and the best models was then selected out of these tens. 10. According to the uh, log likelihood, we calculated the log likelihood for each cluster, um, which is how well uh, the model is, is um, uh, representing our data. Then we went on to, to create models of three clusters. So we added a new cluster. And as a starting point, we randomly assigned 100 patients we took randomly 100 patients from each cluster in the two mo cluster model uh, to start uh, in the next model. And we also randomly assigned 100 patients to a third cluster. Um, then the clustering algorithm was repeated and uh, we repeated it until stability for 10 times for three clusters. Uh, and then we, we repeated these steps up to 12 clusters or 12 trajectories, because we thought that, that somewhere in between two and 12 trajectories would be uh, where we would best um, describe our cohort and our data. So in total, this full process was once again repeated for 25 times. So in the end, we ended up with 25 models of each number of clusters from two to 12. So in this way, we could assess the stability for the importance of the features, for example. So we knew it wasn't just by due to chance that we had reached our results. Uh, we had 25 models of each number of clusters, which we could compare to see if they behaved in similar ways. And uh, why did we choose this clustering approach? Well, we wanted to use real clinical data, which often uh, includes lots of missingness and our different data types, such as continuous or categorical variables. Uh, and not many clustering methods do handle both these criteria, uh, but the mixture of probabilistic graph models do that. Uh, in addition, uh, we had uh, specific competence in our team uh, using this method from, from before, using and implementing and also developing this method from before. And that's why we, we chose to use this clustering approach. Uh, 
Well, yeah, well, I think there's no escaping the uh, complexity of this kind of steady design, but um, so thank you for that great explanation. So we already know quite a lot about brain biomarkers for TBI and in the last in neurology, we published a lot from Sense TBI and also, um, David, you mentioned earlier, track TBI in the US. And um, I think in your study, the key and the novel finding was the one of uh, glucose variation being important for disease trajectory. So can you explain the implications of this finding and how you think it might be useful in clinical practice? So at this point, I think we're not at the stage of clinical use of this finding, but it certainly, to my mind, opens a lot of doors and paths that uh, we might want to consider, uh, trying to understand if this is a cause or if this is an effect, if it's just a descriptor of disease, or if it, if it actually has, has some sort of effect uh, that has to be identified. Uh, I think uh, the, the interest in glucose variability is on the rise also in the general ICU and, and other, other brain damaged populations. I mean, as I guess the, if listeners here are familiar with the ICU uh, 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 literature, they know that there's been a long history of tight glucose control that was not confirmed to have efficacy. But there is an increasing interest, uh, to, to my understanding, of, of just the variation, the variability. And, and in the case of um, uh, neuro and, and brain damage, it'll probably be somewhere in the realm of, of blood-brain barrier effects or endothelial effects or neuroinflammation. But it opens at least a door to possible mechanisms of injury. Uh, but it first has to be established that this this is actually causal and not associative. Okay, and, and finally, um, for both of you thinking ahead to future work, what's next for you? And what do you think right now is the most exciting prospect in this field? I think just as David just mentioned, I think we, we need to better understand the glucose variation or variability better. What are the real mechanisms behind it? Uh, it's, it's not, as David said, it's not only our study that has shown the importance of this, this feature, but it has also been shown that it affects outcome in, in the general ICU cohort and in, in traumatic brain injury patients as well. And I think future work our future work will also focus on, on increasing the understanding of how different groups of patients are responding to given treatments. We just don't need to explain them, not only explain the groups, but also understand how, how are they responding to the treatments. We need to move away from the one-size-fits-all treatments that we are forced to use today as we don't understand the subgroups enough. But we need to identify the right treatments for the right patients to, to ultimately improve the outcomes of this patient group of, of traumatic brain injury patients. And in addition, I think we, we have spent so many years of trying to identify and understanding associations between treatments and physiology and outcomes and, and uh, so on. But I think it's time. We need to really understand the causal inference uh, between these features. And I think these methods investigating causal uh, relationships, they may revolutionize our understanding of, of the care we are giving and the treatments in the neuro ICU and, and what are the drivers of, of the disease really. 
Uh, well, I mean, we, having worked so many years together now, our, we sort of see things somewhat similarly at this point. But um, I, I think that if we're going to somehow decipher this highly dimensional space and trajectories, we we really are going to have to bang it down to to a number of discrete um, states and understand d disease states, pathophysiological states. We have to, with some sort of reverse translation, have to have to couple them back to mechanisms and understand what what affects these states. And also, like Cecilia says, not in the realm of association, but in the realm of causality. And these these um, methods she's mentioning sound uh, uh, sound uh, uh, interesting, but I don't think many realize that they actually were given the Nobel Prize in 2021 in economics. So they're, they're definitely uh, very interesting and on the rise and may revolutionize our way of approaching large observational data sets. And so I think this is uh, going to be something that's going to expand our knowledge uh, 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 potentially a, a lot in how we treat and ways towards treatments. Also, when it comes to neurointensive care and TBI, which is the area I'm in, I, I'm, I'm hoping that, that um, imaging systems are going to help us look more continuously at our monitoring uh, data from patients, understanding so that we can have visual uh, uh, implementations more continuously of, of both flow and, and, and metabolism at the same time and oxygenation. And that's what we're going to start to understand what we're really doing looking into this black box. Dr. Cecilia Ankeland and Dr. David Nelson, thank you for your time. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guests again for taking part, and thank you for listening to this Lancet Neurology podcast. The article we discussed is available online at thelancet.com. Please remember that In Conversation with the Lancet Neurology is available wherever you usually get your podcasts. 